0: Um, I want to start I want to well, ask everyone, everyone, please raise your right hand fully. First of all, thank you for becoming charismatic with me. I appreciate it. But no, 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 uh-uh, no, no, no. Hands up. Yeah So yeah, that's how it works. You may put your arm down if you don't know someone who's been hurt in church. OK. Okay, let's extend this exercise. If you have not been hurt in church, you can lower your hand. Okay. Thank you. You, you may put down your hands. Thank you for participating. I was just joking. That's not how you become a charismatic. Um, the point that I just wanted to just also just see how things are is the people who are closest to us and the people who have access to our most sacred beliefs are the very people who can. Hurt us the easiest, right? Which makes church a prime candidate for people to get hurt and to disagree well. So what I want to do is I want to give you my entire sermon right now in one sentence, and I'll give it to you twice, and then the rest will be footnotes. And if you feel comfortable with the first sentence, you're welcome to leave. Okay, so here's the sermon. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, diversity. Diversity. And in all things, charity, as in love, the old meaning. So I'll say it again. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. Okay, those who want to leave, you are welcome. At the hand of this sentence, I want to guide us through our process and what we do at dialogue and unfortunately half of you are not in dialogue so that might not be too relevant but I think it'll still be illuminating right. first of all I want to take a look at what doctrine is and we're going to get a bit technical so please bear with me and from then on we'll look at the essentials we'll look at the non-essentials and then we can learn how to fight better alright so that's that's my goal If I can get us to fight better I will have one so first off first point Doctrine. Speaking of war, Frederick the Great said the following War is not an affair of chance. A great deal of knowledge, study, and meditation is necessary to conduct it well. What he's saying is, war doesn't just happen on its own. People don't sit around playing cards and then suddenly coordinate trenches in Flanders. That's not how it works. The greatest battles that have ever been fought were done through proper preparation beforehand, with a lot of coordination, and with agreement. That's how war works. This aspect of war is what we call military doctrine. So you can take a look at a war and look at the Air Force's doctrine or naval doctrine. And this consists of three things. The fundamental principles, that is, the things that we've learned from experience. Secondly, the tactics, the techniques, and the procedures that are sort of the best practices, and they are descriptive. And what these do is they allow creativity and um, adaptability on the field. And finally, terms and symbols. That's the shared language, ideas, and concepts that's coordinated in the military. Right. On a side note, the Bible has a lot to say on doctrine. And we'll get back to war in a moment, if you'll allow me. To explain how to get to doctrine and what its role is, I want us to build from the foundation. Okay, So, come along with me on this ride. Right at the bottom, we start with reality. Reality is everything that we experience and can see. It's everything around us. This is it. There's only one, right? Truth is everything that agrees with reality. In another way... You could say that reality is what you bump your head into when you misunderstand it, right? It's like uh, when the lights are off and you walk into a door because you misjudged reality. The door was, eh, right? That's how it works. Theology is a disciplined reflection on God's self-revelation. Now, God's revealed himself in two ways, through his word and through this beautiful universe that he's created with us. But this disciplined reflection on God's uh, self-revelation has a few advantages. It helps us form a Christian understanding of reality. Right? So the way we interpret reality depends on theology. And it has practical significance. What you believe has consequences. Right? In that sense, how many theologians are in this room? Well, as many people as are in the room. If you've ever thought of God, you're a theologian. You can't avoid it. And that brings us to doctrine. We've started with reality. We've built up to truth. We've taken a look at theology. Doctrine, then, is the accurate conveyance or wording of this truth. This is typically a cognitive exercise. This is us looking at Scripture and what's revealed and trying to make sense of it but that's not the full extent of doctrine because that portion of doctrine builds up even further and i almost want to envisage like the image of a tree that's facing up towards the the sun right it's heliocentric doctrine does a few further things it helps us interpret experience it has uh, well yeah it has practical implications And it includes God's story to save us. So a big portion of Scripture is story. It's God telling us how we created everything and how everything will culminate in the end. And for doctrine to be healthy, it has to incorporate all of this. But fundamental to this is this idea of making sense and truth wordings of theology. A Buddhist can have legitimate mystical experiences doctrine will determine if that legitimate experience is true or not or in accordance to God or not it's the arbitrator furthermore you can be very practical and then worship a different Jesus and lastly you can have stories in the Bible and you can you can think that that's the full level of of doctrine but the fact that you arbitrate that one story has an antagonist and a protagonist immediately tells me you're busy with a cognitive process around it. All right. Let me give you a little practical example. Jesus' half-brother, right, James, he says, Guys, you're worshiping God, and with that same mouth, you're cursing people who are made in his image. Don't do that. Let's take it down. He's giving us a practical implication. Stop slandering people. Why? Because he's come to a doctrine. We are made in the image of God based on theology. Right? Who is God? Who is, uh, who, what, what is man? Do we have dignity in the first place? When we do that, it doesn't correspond with reality. We are treating people in a way that doesn't correspond to their nature. And that says we're missing out on reality. So we've gone all the way down to the bedrock in applying this. And this is all over Scripture, right? Doctrine comes first, and lived experience comes second. So in the order of things, we want to make sure that when we have doctrine, we are ensuring that whatever we build on it will draw us closer to God. Why do I say it like this? Why doctrine first? Well, Paul and the authors of the New Testament constantly do this. Let's take a few examples. Colossians has a switch around between one, or Colossians one and two, where you first have indicative statements, that's statements of theology, that switches over to what does it mean for us right now, in in there right now. The same thing for Ephesians. At the end of Ephesians 3, it switches with a therefore from indicative to imperative. In Romans, you've got theology all the way to Romans 12, therefore, brothers, practical to the end. 1 Thessalonians has the break in 1 Thessalonians 4. Even in Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says at Hebrews 10, we've got to switch from indicative to practical or to imperatives. James has this interesting cycle of giving wisdom and then giving application doctrine first lived experience second right but like that tree heading up to the Sun there are a few dangers if we love the study of God more than God then we've missed out listen to what Paul says in 1 Timothy 1 verse 5 he says now the goal of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart a good conscience and a sincere faith whenever we have doctrine that's not guided towards loving god better we're missing out on um, the opposite is hanyu 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 you're just using these words you're so legalistic you just need to love jesus right and that's the tradition that i come from but notice I've used the word doctrine. I've used Jesus. Which Jesus? What do you mean by doctrine? What do you mean by love? Every one of those words are colored in with a lot of meaning of our time. And so, doctrine, when it is healthy, all the way up from reality, points us to God and our love of God. All right, part one. Let's head into the sentence. In essentials, unity. Are you guys ready? (laughs) Now, this is where it might get a bit more controversial. And let me just say, there's a reason why we study this. Uh, First of all, we see in 2 Peter 2 verse 1 that there are teachings that are damnable or destructive. That is to say, there are things that people can teach that can lead, lead to your ruin. And that's dangerous. In 1 Corinthians 15 verse 3 to 4, we read the following. For I passed on to you as of most important as what I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And what Paul's saying is there are certain doctrines that are of first importance. And I think this is important. There's a good reason for us to do this. A few other reasons are um, sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes we don't know what's essential or what's not. Uh, let's take a controversial one, just because it's, it's clear, it's distinct. In the discussion between Arminianism and Calvinism, the way you look at limited atonement, that is to say, the extent of Jesus' death on the cross, who was that for? If you fall to the one side, it has a direct influence on how you see other doctrines. It's almost like a spider's web. Doctrine is very often interweaved. And so it's important for us to study this because it helps us distinguish between what is essential and what isn't. All right. <laughs> a, a, a very stupid, well, I think it's it's, it's plain and obvious reason that I, I also think is just because the Bible says so. It says we should take a clear look at our doctrine. Paul keeps on telling Timothy, watch out, take good care of your doctrine. Uh, Paul also says that teachers, so like people like Johan and Gior and myself and Daniel... We are liable for double judgment because we are teaching in church. That implies that what our doctrine entails is important. Okay, lastly I want to say that the author of Hebrews also instructs his readers to go on to maturity. He says let's pass on from these elementary principles, these elementary teachings, and go on into maturity. So if you are a Christian in time you should be looking at your doctrine. You should be maturing as a Christian. And if you are not, I want to invite you to maybe consider to take a look at your doctrine in a healthy way. Which brings me back to war. I mentioned about military doctrine earlier. I want to just quickly illustrate this at the hand of Operation Overlord, which culminated in D-Day in June 1944. In preparation for D-Day, Hitler organized 3,860 kilometers of naval defense from the side of France all the way to Normandy. Um, and well, no, no, not Normandy, um, the, the Scandinavia, all the way, right? He was preparing for what he knew what was coming. And still, the Allies managed in one day to get a foothold on the continent, get 165,000 men on the continent, more than 5,000 tanks. They, they built two floating um, harbors in one day. And the reason was their military doctrine was on point. Up to that point, there had never been an operation on that scale before. And this incredible feat was achieved through months of planning and drilling and smoke screens to the Nazis. The Nazis had no idea where they were going to land. And it was brilliant. And I think something lies in here. And I think the principle is the degree to which we want to reach up to God, the degree to which we want unity with God, or communion, would be the degree that we go down into the foundations and be clear on our doctrine. All right, enough said. The essentials. What are the essentials of the faith? Essentials are the doctrines that If they were not true, you could not possibly be saved. Does that make sense? Okay. A very, very good way of thinking about uh, the essentials of the faith is the following. It's both the center and the circumference of the circle. There's the middle point in the omtrek of the circle. And what I mean is it both informs us what's at the heart of our faith as well as where the boundaries are for us. To be safe in. That's the essentials of the faith. These are the things we write with a black pen, not a pencil. It's the things that we, we, we can't compromise on. And if we were to not believe them, we would not be Christians. It's what distinguishes us from Jehovah's Witnesses, of Mormons and other cults. And uh, look, you might think I'm closed-minded or, I don't know, arrogant or something, but it's, it's sort of part of the package. Not the arrogance, the the, the, the essentials, right? I, I couldn't call you a Christian in, in the same way if you deny numbers, I couldn't call you a mathematician. It's just, if you're a mathematician, you need numbers, right? That's that's what it's like. And I think that's just about it. Here in, in, in dialogue, just for those who aren't in church, we're currently going through um, a series on what the essentials of the faith are. And that's why we are having a discussion about how to fight better as Christians, right? Um, and so far, we've gone through quite a few. We've, we've pointed out that God created. We've looked at sin. We've looked at uh, God, his unity and his triunity. We've looked at the nature and the person of Christ. We've looked at why he came. We've looked at the church. We've still got a few ahead, uh, a few that, oh yeah, the death and resurrection of Christ, very essential. And we've still got a few left. But um, what these aren't are points that make people in another church not your brothers. And that brings us to the point three. In non-essentials, liberty. So we have in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. Secondary doctrines are doctrines which make People with a clean conscience will say, you know what, practically I don't think we can uh, be church together. We have different views of, of seeing it, of, of seeing um, Christianity. And these doctrines have a fundamental effect on our faith. It, it, these are not unimportant doctrines, and we have to be clear on that. We'll go through a few in a moment, right? But I want to, I want to make it clear. It's not that this is like... Well, we have essentials, so let's just be nonchalant about the rest. Not at all. Our view on this has a direct effect on how we do church. So it's more than just uh, doctrinal wording. Okay. Now, these doctrines, I want to make clear, are not tests for orthodoxy. So we can differ on this, and you can still be a Christian. And furthermore, they're not tests of Christian fellowship. Right. So what are a few non-essentials? It's going to be just, this is where I want to say, love you. It's, it's just, <laughs> ah, I didn't expect that. The age of the earth is not an essential of the faith. You can be a foam-in-the-mouth young earth creationist. You can be a staunch old earth creationist. You are a Christian. It's not an essential The name of a church, not essential. The form of church government, Episcopal, Presbyterian, Congregational, it's not an essential. Mode of baptism, probably the most controversial doctrine, at least in South Africa's history, right? I don't know if you've had really bad conversations. I've had a few. (laughs) You can sprinkle. You can pour, you can dip, do up, whatever. It's not an essential. The type of music. And I must be honest, I didn't expect uh, a choir to be singing tonight. And so I, I want to thank you for actually demonstrating that this evening. And within the choir tradition, there was variety as well. And I want to thank you guys for that. Right. The ministry of women. If you are, in the South Africa, this doctrine has an acronym because it's so contentious. Vida. Right? It's it's not an insignificant point. And if you think it's silly that some churches don't allow women at the pulpit, I want to say you haven't been reading your scriptures. It's a very lively discussion. A few points that I want to make here. There are no sex symbols. On the gifts of the Spirit. The gifts are given to all, men and women. The debate isn't even over ministry, but over authority. So if you're a woman, I just want to say you've got a ministry, necessarily, whether there's a debate or not. We can start there. We can talk about that. Another non-essential is the coming of Christ, when, when that is. We believe that is coming back, but when? The miraculous gifts of the Spirit. There are people sitting here tonight that differ on this point. Some believe that there still are miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit that's being actively performed today. I am one of them. Most of the teaching team at Dialogue is not. We are brothers. What we can say is God desires us to have the fruit of the Spirit far more than the gifts of the Spirit. And that's something that all denominations can agree on. And even if you don't have the gift of an evangelist, guess who's called to do evangelism? All of you. <laughs> and then, uh, last point, even if you have one tongue, if you can speak one language, God wants you to use it. And, and he, he wants you to use that tongue, and he wants you to pray. Right. And then I think probably the, let's say the, the most spicy one of all, Calvinism and Arminianism. The interaction between God's sovereignty and human free will. Right. There's a, uh, well a family member conveyed a story um, where he, he had been working and there was a, a colleague of his who was madly in love. And they saw each other on the Friday and she was in, in a cheery mood because she was going to see her boyfriend and Came back on Monday and just absolutely dejected. Just everything was just wrong. And he's like, what, what, what's going on? And she said, we, uh, we, we had to break up. And he's like, oh, gosh. The guy's from another country, so he's like, oh, well, is, is he not a Christian? What's, what's going on? And she said, no, uh, he's in a church that, that says women don't have to wear hats when they go to church. And if it leaves you a little bit flabbergasted, that's exactly what happened, right? But the point is, we can get it wrong. We can get it wrong when we disagree. Let's differ over whether Jesus Christ is God. Let's not differ over whether women should wear hats in church. It's not going to affect our salvation. All right. So why do we disagree in the first place? I think that's a very good question to ask, right? If Christianity is true, why why, why all this variation? I want to acknowledge one <laughs> doctrine that all Christians hold to be true. We are very sinful. And I think our sin and our preference really plays in on this. We have preferences. And um, when we don't hold to a doctrine, a good question we can ask ourselves is, why do I not accept this doctrine as being true? Maybe first investigate your heart. Now, there are other reasons as well. You may have had experiences which may influence your theology. You may have come to conclusions from the tradition that you're in and accepted that as just being true. For, uh, well, in a previous sermon, I made the point that. Uh, especially Reformed churches tend to focus on God the Father, Charismatic churches tend to focus on the Holy Spirit, and uh, uh, pietist churches, uh, among which there are a lot in the Enghe church, focus on Jesus. You also see Johan likes to focus on Jesus. I tend to go more for the Holy Spirit. We'll see. Um, But the point is we have emphases in different church denominations, and I think that's legitimate. Which brings me to our last point in all things charity in all things charity in essentials unity in non-essentials diversity and in all things charity we can minimize the differences we have very effectively by doing one thing by taking a look at our pre-understandings that we bring to the text so it's helpful to recognize that there is a massive worldview, a chasm, maybe a chasm is too strong, let's say divide between us and the authors of Scripture. Right? Now, when we read the Bible and, and think about doctrines, what the text says meant one thing. It can have layers of meaning, but it meant something to the original readers. That was put in a frame of their day. We are approaching the Bible with a completely different set of questions. A completely different mindset and a, yeah, a completely different framework. And so the danger that we have and that we can experience is that our pre-understanding can influence our understanding of the text. When our pre-understanding and our immediate context shouldn't do that, it should influence our application of the text. We've got meaning and application, what it means, right? And that's the, like I said, doctrine first, uh, experience second, right? What does that mean? Let me give you an example. There have been points in history when baptism became mixed. Church and state started working together, and what baptism meant also started entailing citizenship. It's happened in America, and I know it happened in Rome. It probably happened all over um, history. So what happens is the immediate context influences the way we read what baptism means and then has an application. And if we had to talk to people in that era, we would have differences. And so our job is to diligently look at what the text meant and um, the degree to which we gain a biblical worldview will be the degree to which we will ask the same questions of the text and engage with the same questions of the text as the original authors meant and the degree to which we do that will help us in our accuracy so it's a direct correlation that degree will have the degree to which we understand what the application meant which means we can apply it more accurately today. All right. So that is a very effective way of making the Bible and differences in doctrine relevant. A question for you. The big debate over the age of the earth, young earth creationism, old earth creationism. Did did the author of Genesis, when he wrote... Uh, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Did he, when he wrote that, have a scientific framework in mind? And did he want the readers to have a one-to-one direct understanding of what those words meant compared to what it means scientifically? That's a no, right? That's not the author's intent. And a big portion of the debate hangs on this very point, just practically. There's one cool thing about the essentials of the faith, though. They're culturally neutral. That means that whenever we have discussion with Christians, we can know one thing. We can be safe. It's this very strange thing. You are sitting in the most diverse, culturally, linguistically, geographically, politically, uh, socioeconomically group of people that have ever existed. There's no organization as diverse as the church. With the secondary doctrines, it's a bit more cloudy. It's a lot easier to import your context into the church. You can interpret a word to mean woman or wife, for example. And that can have an influence on the role of women in church. But the fact that we can stand united around the essentials means that we have a common framework which can make discussion easier. All right. We are going to take a look at how to fight right now. So before I do that, I want to just tell a little story that happened two months ago. I was visiting family and there was like a, a SCO or whatever, and there was a duemini, and who I who I know, and I had just read one Timothy, and I, it was such an interesting read. I saw things that I'd never seen before, and so I was talking with him, and he mentioned, oh, he, uh, there's a lot of uh, okay, there's this, there's this cult, uh, the Israelite, the what do you, what's the full name? Israel Visi. And, whew, man, they have very interesting uh, doctrinal differences with, with, with us. Um, and the Germany the, the is like, no, well, it's very interesting because the very points that Paul is making, they are the exact points that Isla V.C. gets wrong. And it's like, wow, that's super interesting. When this third guy walks up to us, he was braying next to us, and he folds his arms And he sort of goes and stands, and he's like, You know what I'm thinking? People who have never heard of Jesus, they will all go to heaven. And I stood there, and I I didn't understand why he he was saying it, so I I was trying to be charitable. So I said, okay, look, um, we're talking about 1 Timothy. Uh, Can you help us? Can you drag this to the conversation? No, no, I, I just wanted to say that. So, <laughs> and so, so, I mean, it was a bit awkward, but then we steered the conversation, and I'll, I'll get back to, to how that story ended, at least. That's just to say that, especially Afrikaners, I can't say for, if you're in a different cultural group, we're kind of hard-headed. And we're really bad at fighting. We're good at, like, getting angry, And like, and then, right? And, well, if, like we said, the church is the one place where we can really hurt each other, I think this is the best opportunity we have to learn how to fight better, how to disagree well. In the case of of the, the guy who really wanted to share his opinion, What happened was we steered the conversation by asking um, how much he's thought of it, in which congregation he is, um, what's his understanding of Scripture, and then to help him and guide him in that discussion, which I think is a a very uh, profitable way or good way of handling conversation. But let's get practical, right? The fact is when we differ with people, it's never nice. I don't know one person who's like, I'm going to fight with this guy, and it's going to be awesome, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, it's like you first have to go through this tunnel. It's really dark, and it's a, you're not sure of yourself, and it's difficult and awkward, and you're stumbling, and you're not sure where you are, and finally you reach to a conclusion, and there's this beautiful view ahead of you. That's the path that these discussions have to take, Right? So let's give a few points first of all you have nothing to lose and This this is the hidden promise This is the view that's hidden for us You have nothing to lose in having doctrinal conversations with other people the least you can gain The minimum is you can come closer to the truth That's the lowest level gain you can have and so here's the invitation don't run away from these conversations rather here's an opportunity to get to know the person better this is an opportunity to know god better this is an opportunity for you to lay your theology down and to find out whether what you have been teaching has been in line with the church the holy spirit hasn't only been working in you he's been working in 2000 years of very diligent christians right we stand in this tradition for a reason so practically <laughs> Have these conversations in relationship. If you don't know someone, these conversations can get very heated. And because you don't understand where they're coming from and why they are saying the things that they are saying, it's easy to get um, quiet with them, angry. Secondly, you have two ears and one mouth. And especially, once again, I don't want to pick on my people, but it's my frame of, of reference. Listen emphatically. Here is a guideline. When you're having a conversation with a fellow brother and sister, you should be able to articulate what they believe and why they believe in a way that that person will say, ah, that's exactly right. If you can't do that, you shouldn't be engaging in the conversation. You should first reach that point. A good way to do that is to ask, why do you believe that? what led you to this conclusion how do you interpret the bible which which leads you to this then it also helps when you distinguish the doctrine from the person doctrine isn't who you are it just helps us formulate truth right it's not your face that's wrong it's possibly your doctrine all right (laughs) then i have been speaking to you in the singular the whole time Which has been giving away my cultural import into this. Our salvation is individual and collective. How many books of the Bible were written to be read in private? Even Philemon was probably um, meant to be read in public. The thing is, when we have these discussions, have it with other Christians. Have it in a group. We are remarkably individualistic. We are importing our beliefs and the fact that, well oh, not the fact, the lie that we are neutral, objective, arbitrators of truth to the text. You're not. It's, it's, it's not good practice. If you are doing that, I want to invite you to please get people to talk with. Then, another thing we can do is to pray for God to remove our pride and arrogance. A lot of the time, we believe things for whatever reason, but we are too prideful to admit we are wrong. Once again, this is an opportunity for us. All right. Then, I want to encourage us to be diligent in our study of God's Word. I'm going to read 1 Timothy 1 verse 5 again. He says, the goal of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. People who approach Scripture with that will earnestly try to figure out what is true. Second last point we should love those who differ from us. And we see this uh, Jesus' most famous teaching. What did he say? Love your enemies. Love people who differ uh, from you. A good uh, criteria is when you are having these discussions, at minimum, you should be loving the person more afterwards than beforehand. That's just a good uh, rule of thumb for us. We can be of the same mind without being of the same opinion. Right? So I, I want to look finally at, at Jesus' prayer for us. In the heart of the book of John, in the most intimate section, Jesus is praying to the Father, and he's praying uh, for his disciples. um, In John 17, verse 11, uh, and then 20 and 21, we read this. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by your name that you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one verse 20 and 21, I pray not only for these, but also for all those who believe in me through their word. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. Jesus is he's praying for you. He's praying for everyone who comes to believe in him through their witness, which is here. You are all Gentiles probably. It's it's incredible. That's his prayer for us. His prayer is that we may stand in unity. Now, I want to distinguish this from two other ideas. He's not praying for uniformity, nor is he praying for union. Uniformity comes down to a complete similarity in organization or ritual. When things are uniform, they're all the same. Jesus isn't praying for that. Jesus is not praying for our union, where it implies political affiliation beyond, let's say, uh, personal belief. We can see uniformity, for example, in the rituals of the Roman Catholic Church. It's, it's uniform. Or in Islam, if you take the teachings of Allah seriously, you will start living like a 7th century Arabian person. That's just how it is, right? You can go wrong with union, for example, in interfaith movements, where we are so affiliated with political reason that we can miss the essential unity. Unity, on the other hand, requires an inner heart that's the same. It's a common shared purpose or goal in life. And that's what Jesus is praying for you and for me, for us, for church, for whatever church you are, you are in. That's Jesus' most intimate prayer before he went to intercede at the Father's side. Now think about this. Jesus is God, and yet he is distinct from God. We are one, and yet we are diverse. This is literally South Africa's big question. How can we have a united nation with a diversity or plurality of people? The church is the answer. And we have the resources to do this. We can finish and and fight well. So I want to encourage you with the following Be diligent, dear Christian, dear brother and sister, with your doctrine. May you go as deep as you want to reach high. Let your foundation point fully to your living God. Be safe in the essentials. Give room for our differences. But most importantly, love the Lord your God with everything you have. And love your neighbor as yourself. Let's close eyes. Heavenly Father, thank you that we can be united with you. In complete unity unity with you. Thank you for the diversity of people here tonight. Thank you for your providence in, in bringing such fresh music and and people from all over Lord thank you that we can even have differences Um, and and I pray that you will help us to become mature as Christians to help each other to to differ better so that we can understand each other better that we can love each other better we want to honor you for the fact that we can be part of this beautiful expression of people of every nation every country every place every language throughout history we want to honor you for that and lord help us help us to do that very well Um, especially when we are finding our feet uh, these conversations are difficult Uh, so empower us jesus in your holy name we pray amen